I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to another episode of Upzoned, where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm an urban planner with Gould Evans, and I am joined once again by my friend Chuck Marone, who is hopefully recharged from your camping trip last week. How's it going, <laughs> Chuck? It's going great. Yeah, and it was a beautiful camping trip. Uh, this week is my my wife has her birthday this week, and so we've kind of been combining camping, her favorite activity, with like other things that she likes to do. So it's been a it, I can't say it's been relaxing because I'm kind of like the curator of this, but it's been very nice and it's nice to do something nice for her too. Yeah. We are finally getting to the point of perfect camping weather, at least in the Kansas city area. It's probably not as cold as you would like Chuck, but (laughs) we've had some rain finally. And so it's cooled down quite a bit and I'm looking forward to getting outside this weekend. Well, overnight low here last night, 46 degrees. We have two windows in our room and our bedroom, and we actually closed one. So (laughs) it was a concession to fall, I guess. We're not getting quite that cold. I don't think we'll get there until late October, but but we are having beautiful days, which is awesome. I still have shorts and sandals on, so you know I will wear those till they force them off me. Yeah, until I'm sure January. Yes. So the story that we are going to talk about today was published this week by The Guardian and written by Miranda Bryant, entitled Public Transit Faces a Death Spiral Without $32 Billion Injection from Congress. Earlier this year, the CARES Act provided $25 billion in support of public transit. And nationally, at, you know, since the pandemic began, the use of public transit has dropped an estimated 90%, obliterating fare revenue across the nation. Reduced revenues are now forcing transit agencies to consider potentially reducing services and raising fares. And transit advocates are calling for another $32 billion as a stimulus to keep it all running. So the death spiral in the title of this article refers to the potential impacts associated with reducing services and raising fares, and especially pertaining to people who most rely on public transit during this time. Reducing services could mean that someone who relies on transit to get to work or run errands no longer has access to that as a mobility option, and this could lead to loss of work or evictions or increased poverty, etc., Raising fares to account for the loss of ridership also has an impact as people who rely heavily on transit then must bear the brunt of increased fees. So we are now faced with the question about whether or not we bail out our public transportation systems during this difficult time. So I have some kind of pretty strong first impressions about this reading this article, but I kind of wanted to get your first impressions first, Chuck. Yeah, I have some very strong ones too. I I actually wanted to start by leaning into the empathy part of this because while I'm a systems thinker and transit in America is insane to me and drives me crazy and like 
the idea of transit being in a death spiral is to me obvious and it's been obvious for years and years. And like the idea that, okay, unless Congress spends all this money, it's going to hurt, you know, a bunch of poor people. It's like, well, yeah. And it's been hurting them for years and years. And this is a really terrible way to deal with this problem. Let's get to that. But to me, like, I think that we should start with the fact that we have created a dysfunctional land use pattern, overlaid that with a dysfunctional transit solution to handle people who are not able to fully participate in the development pattern as we built it. We have funded that transit system in the most awkward and backward way imaginable. And now when we have this period of economic stress, all the people who are provided like a marginal existence on this really messed up system are getting beat up really badly and bearing a disproportionate brunt of the pain. That is all true. <laughs> and I think that we should collectively, if you are very pro-transit, if you're very, you know, think transit is ridiculous, if you like our system and think it needs more money, that's a bizarre, simplistic thinking in my mind. But if that's you, if you think transit should be completely defunded, wherever you are, I think we should stop and pause and say, we've created a system where a bunch of people are dependent on transit providing, you know, circuitous, long, dysfunctional routes to them to get to a place where they can eke out a living at a job that barely pays them anything. And we're like stealing that last bit of thing from them by having transit fall apart. That is true. And that is really, really sad and should motivate us to do something different. That was kind of falls along the lines of my first impression with this article. So, you know, public transportation is one of those controversial topics in many cities because systems are so often heavily subsidized. And in fact, I don't think that there's any public transit system in the U.S. that comes close to covering their costs with fees. But at Strong Towns, we, we often talk about the need for cities to manage themselves productively, including being good financial stewards. To me, public transit is one of those things that we kind of have come to accept aren't going to be wholly productive. And that's because, you know, from my perspective, mobility is a human decency issue. And investing in that signals our desire to invest in ourselves and promote programs that support upward economic mobility of people who need it the most. So suddenly during this pandemic, not offering the support line has serious co consequences to our most vulnerable people in our society with a domino effect that can potentially lead to increased evictions and poverty. So we are in such an unprecedented situation right now and our systems are obviously fragile. Our land use patterns are fragile. We've built a city where people have to rely on public transit to get gain access to you know, employment centers, which is not the type of city we should have built in the first place. But given the circumstances, my first impression after reading this article is like, yes, give them what they need. Give, give them what they need right now because this is an unprecedented situation. So can I push back on your first insight, which was something along the lines of like, I believe in public transit because I think there's a human decency component here. Is that a fair way to reflect back what you said? Yes. Okay. So let me state that in a different way. And I want you to argue with me if you, if you disagree with this. 
I hear the majority of transit advocates, almost all of them make this exact case. We should essentially think of this as like charity. We have mobility options here for people who drive and there are people who can't afford to drive. And so in a sense, this is like a charitable thing we do because we have a base standard of decency in this country and everybody should have mobility options and we should you know, take care of everyone. I find that argument I'm not saying that that's morally wrong. If I went to church, that's probably the argument they would, you know, <laughs> if I went to church. On Sundays at church, that's a, if they talked about transit, that's the argument they would make, right? Like that's, I get that. It's like a Christian generosity, kindness, charity. To me, you cannot run a government that way. And a government doesn't work that way. And here's why. And here's why like collectively when we do things together, it doesn't work. If you think of your own family, and you're like, and I know there's people already flipping out because they'll say government's not like a family. Local government is because we can't print our own money. We can't borrow our way to prosperity. We have to live within our means. There is an analogy here with local government and families. So hear me out. If you're a family and you are doing okay and you're feeling prosperous, you're feeling like you're doing all right, charitable giving often goes up. Middle-class people are, as a percentage of their wealth, very generous. The problem becomes when your fortunes are going down the other way, when you feel like things are tight, when you feel like things are constrained, but I can't afford for my kids to go to college. I can't afford, I maybe will not eat out as much or I'll, I'll not go to that concert I was planning to go to and I'll still give to charity. But as soon as it starts hitting things like, you know, I can't send my kids to the school I want to go to. I can't afford the daycare. I can't buy my kids the, uh, the clothes they want. Like things that are not wholly selfish but are kind of part of you know, wanting a better future for those closest to you. When you start to get to that level of like cutting back on your family, what happens is people will say, like, I will maybe give a little bit to that charity, but I can't give what I give last year. I will maybe do a little bit, but I, I can't do what I used to do. When we look at cities, cities have set themselves up today as like, the prerequisite is we must provide public safety. We got to have police and firefighters. That's like the base thing, what we do. Um, you know, and we're seeing pushback on that now for, for very good reasons. We provide roads. That's, that's like our whole economic development strategy is based around roads and on people being able to have mobility and get to where we want. And then on top of that road system, we've overlaid this charity of transit that you know, we want to provide and provide as best we can, but you know what? Times are really tough and it's really hard and I'm sorry, but this isn't not like our core to our economic development approach, which by the way, we got to have or we're not going to be around. And so you're going to experience like the disproportionate level of cuts, cutbacks. You're not going to get the love you need in an emergency. I see cities running out right now, bailing out businesses, putting money into infrastructure, doing stuff to try to get growth back. None of that is related to transit. What you have put forward is a compassionate, empathetic mindset. And I, I agree with you on that. I think what happens is when we translate that into public policy as charity, we make the actual transit system financially not viable, especially in hard times. And that's why I would like a totally different mindset running our transit systems, one that is actually, you know, based on land use and viability as opposed to it being like a charity budget item. Now, I just talked for a long time. So you you tell me where I'm wrong and I, I will accept. That. 
so I agree with, you know, land use patterns, connecting with transit and making that support the viability of a local public transportation system. Going back to the family analogy, though, I actually wouldn't think of public transit as much as charity or, you know, as as going to a concert or spending money on going out to dinner, you know, things that are frivolous. I tend to think about public transit as something that signals that we are investing in our people or it's a long game investment in ourselves. To me, that's the distinction, that it's not something that is directly productive, but it is something that can be a long game in terms of, you know, creating something that is more productive because it helps people participate in in society in a more productive way by having access to opportunities. So that's kind of the pushback I have there is that it's, I think that local governments, if we want to think of it as a family, there are lots of things that we're spending money on that maybe are more frivolous than public transit. So so public transit kind of is higher on the list of things that we should be supporting as compared to maybe other programs that are not directly related to people's ability to get to work. But let's even say that like it is, to use a family analogy, equivalent to saving for college or saving for retirement, you know, things that like you would invest in your future. If you can't buy food, if you can't put gas in your car, if you can't, and cities are beyond that point. I mean, cities are broke. They are, you know, financially in dire straits. I would say akin to a family, not being able to buy food, not being able to put gas in the car. You're not going to fund your retirement account. You're not going to put money aside for your kid's college because you have to deal with what's in front of you today. Understand, like I'm agreeing with you that this is an investment in our community and in our future. I just think the way we positioned it, let's acknowledge here too, that to the extent that transit is publicly you know, subsidized, auto driving is massively publicly subsidized. I mean, in, in many dimensions from parking to driving to strodes to the, the whole deal. So we're not talking about one is bad because it's subsidized and one is good because it's not. We're talking about how our livelihood, our economy, how the things we depend on to put food on the table and, and gas in the car, how those things manifest. And for cities, transit is not central to that. It's just not. Well, and that brings me to thinking about bailouts and deficit spending and kind of our cultural buy-in around the idea that we should spend a bunch of money on infrastructure right now. Like an infrastructure proposal comes forward and, and most people are not going to even question it with very little details. And even before this, we've been subsidizing highways, streets, road widenings, parking garages, things that are indirectly subsidizing people driving their own vehicles and having ease of commutes. So regardless of the mobility option that you're using, your movement is going to be subsidized in some way. And I think that that, that's an important point when public transit is asking for a bailout. I kind of tend to think that it is worthy of our investment if we're also going to say that expanding highways and and all of these other things are worthy of our investment as a way of stimulating the economy during recession. It's almost a no-brainer that if if we're going to spend X amount of billions of dollars on highway systems, that it's actually would be 
a better impact to society from kind of the empathetic position to support our transit systems during this time, during this very unprecedented time. And yeah, as a long-term strategy, we should be rethinking how public transit is funded. Like, you know, I'm a hundred percent on board with that because it is not necessarily going to be sustainable the way that we've done it now. And I think that there are models that we should be uh, pursuing that are going to be more resilient to economic changes. But at this time, we're in a position where these public transit systems are are begging for support. So it, there's almost like a long game strategy and a right now strategy for what we do about public transit. I would agree with you on that. Let me be clear. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't spend this money. I mean, we're, we're bailing out airlines, which I think have, you know, far less of a future and utility <laughs> than, than, than buses and transit systems generally. So, exactly. And those are basically just a, an overpass over the country, which is. <laughs> so my frustration is based more on the fact that if we went to Zurich, Switzerland today, which I, I've spent some time in, or Geneva, you know, which I spent some time in, they're not having this debate. They're not having this debate because they're more compassionate or because they care for the poor more or because they're more charitable or because their sense of social justice is that much greater. They're not having this debate because their transit investments are not charitable investments. They're actually investments in the wealth and growth and stability of their community. There's a saying that transit advocates use that I think is actually really good. I think they use it incorrectly. They say, you know, a great transit system is one where wealthy people ride it. I think often they mean in the sense that we derisively call captured riders, essentially people who have no option but to ride transit, we kind of discount them. What transit advocates often, when they say, you know, a great transit system is one where wealthy people ride it, is they want wealthy people to be captured riders in a sense where they can ignore their needs as well um, and just assume that they're going to be on it. What is actually happening in a place like Zurich is they've built the land use pattern in conjunction with their transit investments, or let me say the opposite because the, the land use pattern came first. They have a land use pattern that is now uh, supported by a transit system that is scaled properly to that land use pattern. And because of that, people can drive, sure. People can park, sure. That's really expensive to do in both your money and your time. Or you can just get on a bus and get to wherever you want really quickly. And so everybody does it. The wealthy do it. The poor do it. The middle-class people do it. But it's not done as charity. It's not done as this like charitable overlay to the system everybody else uses. It's done as part of an overall development strategy for how do we build what we've done in the U.S. has said, let's subsidize automobiles and make that like subsidized. And then, yeah, like a lot of people can't buy it. So let's subsidize this other system over top of that. And what I'm saying is like, let's build a system that doesn't need this, like where the wealth of the community is built into the system that we're building. And so it's not a matter of like subsidizing it. It's more like what we do today with cars. We would not never defund highways today because it would destroy our entire economy. Zurich would never defund their transit system because it would destroy the entire economy of their community. Their community would stop functioning. We can defund 
transit in this country and it won't do anything in terms of our economy. I mean, it might have some impact, but it's hard to argue that it would. And that's why we're subsidizing airlines today, because we've made airlines such a central part to how our economy functions. Does that does that make sense? Well, you know, we have very few cities in the United States where that that rely on public transit as a central function of their economy. Places like New York need their public transit system to be operating, but places like Kansas City, it's it's not necessarily central to our economy, but it is something that we've chosen to complete. We have we don't have fares, for example, in Kansas City. It is 100% I believe 100% paid for through our general fund, which, you know, see, looking at the what's happening with the general fund is a little bit worrisome if that's going to be able to be sustained. But along our streetcar system, that's paid for through special property tax assessments along that system, promoting development to help to make it a productive use of spending essentially. And the land use discussion is the most frustrating part to me because we've essentially, not even just land use, but also the way that people of different incomes are so often segregated in our cities and how, you know, we know that that was done intentionally. The fact that we have cities where people cannot just participate in their own local economy. They have to get on a bus. They have to go all the way across town to get any opportunities for work. That's my biggest frustration is just the fact that people, many people don't have options where they're at. Right. Let me say this, and I think this may end my tenure on UpZone podcast. One of my greatest frustrations with progressives and progressive-minded people is that they will almost flippantly say, like, the economics of the situation don't matter. You read this article from The Guardian, and it's basically like, transit is in a death spiral. Uh, we need to bail it out. We need all this money for transit and, you know, spend the money now and let's do it. It's the righteous thing to do. There's an overlay of, hey, we're bailing out everybody else. Why wouldn't we bail out transit? Let's be compassionate and da 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 da. The frustration that I have is that on the front end of putting these systems into place, that thinking allows us to create systems that are inherently fragile, are ridiculously fragile. I might back this off if we were having like a conversation around a table with a bunch of people. When the progressive mindset leads a lot of these reforms and there isn't like a, a conversation about how we make the economics of it work, what we get is we get systems that mirror more charity than they do like a, a business, like a financially viable thing. Because you're leading with your heart and the sense that like we have to cure this injustice as opposed to how do we set up something that actually works. And the downside of that is that when the economics of it falls apart, when there's economic distress, when you have economically like a rainy day instead of all sunny days, what you find is that the fragile systems fall apart and the most fragile people in that system are the most impacted. They're the impacted the hardest, the first, the most cruel. And so my message to progressives is always like, if you want to have your empathy and compassion actually, you know, model in, in the systems that you build, we have to actually have the other side of the equation in upfront. We actually have to take care of the economics 
upfront so that the systems we build are resilient and they work even in bad times. Because this is the model we see over and over again is we have distress and the poor people are the worst hurt by this. And then we wring our hands about that, but don't really do much. That is my core frustration here is not that transit systems shouldn't get $32 billion, give them the $32 billion. I don't think it will make people's lives better off in general, and it it will continue the fragility. And if things don't, you know, get back to grow, grow, grow soon, it's going to get even worse. Like, I don't think that solves anything. The idea that somehow death spiral should be like one of the options on the table for a system we build is a really stupid idea. It's just dumb. Like, why did we build a system where death spiral is one of the possible outcomes? I'm not saying this after the fact. I've been saying this for decades. This is not hard to predict. Like death spiral is on the table as an option, as a likely option when you have economic hardship. That's that's what happens in the system the way we built it. Why is that inherent to the system? So that was actually something I was thinking about this morning, not just about public transit, but housing and all of these other topics that we talk about is that death spiral is an outcome that anytime something stops, we can't close the door, so to speak, for a certain amount of time without everything falling apart. You know, I'm not an economist, but that seems like a horrible way to set up an economy that that we have a system that can't just halt for a second. It just, we need endless growth. It's kind of like every industry is a Ponzi scheme and you guys just focus on one of them. In terms of progressives, conservatives needing to have like a sustainable solution to these things, I, I do think that that is where talking about the need for cities to be productive kind of comes into play because the way I think about it is that we've built cities that we can't afford and a robust city is a city that has built built so productively that it has the money to invest in itself. Back in 1950 and, and before that, Kansas City was was a robust city that was able to invest in itself and invest in their public buildings and invest in things that that were, you know, not necessarily needed, but things that were landmarks and things that helped to signal this as a great city. And I'm sure that that's the story for many, many cities across the United States. It's important for progressive or, you know, left of center and right of center people to be able to come together on these things because we can lead with our hearts, but we do need to have a, a way to sustain that financially. And that's a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it is the truth. Right. I get what you're saying. I think you're right. I do feel like, you know, we are at the death spiral part of this narrative. And I think if we are going to transition through this into something else, we're going to have to get beyond. This is where I feel like the whole top-down narrative distorts our conversation. And I point mostly to the economics people who are doing this. I mean, the ones who say, you know what, Uh, if we've got a problem, let's just print the money and there's no consequence to doing that. If there's a problem, let's just borrow the money and there's no consequence to doing that. We can basically take this system and arrest the death spiral by just throwing money at it. And, you know, that thinking has infected our entire society. And I think until we get beyond that thinking, 
we're actually going to have a system that is despotic for a lot of people. That's what I find morally reprehensible. I think transit is like a symptom of that, but the underlying problem is that we actually just throw money at problems instead of actually fixing them. Our local leaders can fix them. I, I want to give them the power and the authority and the resources to do that. Well, we've been able to be unaccountable to setting, you know, setting up Each systems other. that yeah. are not that don't work and are unsustainable in the long run, rather than investing in things that can be sustainable. Right. Right. Well, I I won't kick you off the show. Um, <laughs> well, you might not, but our discussion. listeners our listeners might. The last time when we talked about high-speed rail, I got so much like, uh, you know, respectful, but like negative feedback on that. And I'm like, okay, I, I love you guys. I mean, like the people who are transit advocates, they're very good people. Like I love them. They're very nice. And they're, they're dealing in an irrational system. So like they're trying to chart a course of something that makes sense in a system that is brutally cruel to them. I get it. But I'm like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure this thing out from a, a bigger system standpoint. And I think that, you know, transit advocates are going to be long in the wilderness if they keep with their current approach. Yeah. Well, I, I often think that a lot of the issues that we talk about are cities coping with their tax systems. We're coping with systems that are in place that are not easily changeable and trying to work within them and, and create distortions. To the listeners who are uh, listening to this episode, please don't cancel Chuck for his <laughs> views about public transit. Is this is a this is a space that I think that we can have these types of debates, and these are the types of debates that are needed. So, yeah, don't be mad at Chuck. <laughs> I think the time clock on me being canceled is is ticking. I know that it will happen at some point, so we'll just hopefully not today. You just have to become uncancelable. There's some people who who can't be canceled. Who's uncancelable? I won't even mention them. My daughters, <laughs> um, you know, my daughters are 13 and 16, and they, I think, the next generation coming up who have grown up in this are going to treat this very differently because uh, they laugh about it. They're like, "Oh yeah, he's canceled, Dad," or "She's canceled," and then they'll <laughs> go around and like this, you know. This doll in their room is canceled. That like thing is canceled, and they laugh about it. Like it's they've dealt with it with comedy, and uh, I find it refreshing. So, well, let's let's remember that the people who participate in canceling people are a very small portion of the general population, and most people don't appreciate that kind of behavior and actually are open to having conversations where not everybody agrees and it's not an echo chamber. So, and I'm sure the people who listen to this show feel the same way. And that's, that's what we need to start appreciating more in my opinion. And, and I'm fairly young and there are plenty of young people that I know, including, you know, my little sisters, they treat it as comedic as well. So, and they don't participate in that type of behavior. Yeah. For transit, I'm on board. Like I love transit. Let's build more. Like I want, I want great transit, but I just, I just don't want it to have the death spiral option attached to it. Right? <laughs> well, let's build great cities that are that don't have death spirals, right? <laughs> yeah, like, let's let, let's build great places that where death spiral is not an option and that are sustainable in all ways. Let's let's start doing that. Yeah, death spiral should not be a menu option. 
right? Yeah, that somebody needs to run for mayor in some city and make that their slogan. Death spiral <laughs> is not an option. And you and I should not be advising campaigns because <laughs> we should. <laughs> Yeah, we should not be advising campaigns, but you know, if if somebody wants to use that, go ahead and go ahead and steal it. I have a hard stop in three minutes, so we got to. You have a hard stop in three minutes. I feel like that was a little bit of a down zone. Yeah, Uh, what? What what do you think? Talking about cancel culture and and how uh, maybe you'll be canceled one day. Hopefully not. (laughs) It will happen. Well, I I will defend you when that happens, and. We'll call that the down zone and we'll let you have your hard stop. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town and don't cancel Chuck. Thanks, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, Abby. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do. I'm about to get out. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down tonight. Get down tonight. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down tonight. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down tonight.